Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Italis Malave, Gihan Pereira, and Michael Lerner. Italis Malave and Gihan Pereira, welcome to this New School conversation. Italis, uh, you suggested race and justice as a frame for this conversation and suggested Gihan Pereira of the Miami Workers Center as a colleague with whom to talk. What brings you to this core commitment to race and justice, and what led you to suggest that Gihan would be such an interesting person to have the conversation with? Well, many of us have long-standing commitments to racial justice, and what I have been fascinated, intrigued, and totally taken with recently are some new evolving analyses of the nature of racism, the key one being structural racism, an analysis that what I so appreciate about it acknowledges how racism has become embedded in the very structures of our society um, and systems. And that the question of intent, of racist intent, is really, and blame, is irrelevant. I think that opens up a space for um, people to intervene without this burden of blame and guilt. Um, It also acknowledges how deeply intertwined so many of the systems that we are all part of, how deeply intertwined they are and the impact of that. So housing, employment, education, all of these systems are so intertwined that any effort that we make to work on improving one um, is doomed if we also don't make um, related efforts in other areas. So the possibility, I think, with this new analysis for beginning to work at this issue, which is, I think, one of the largest obstacles to successful progressive movement in this country. And how did you come to know Gihan's work at the Miami Workers Center? Well, Gihan and I met, and he invited me to a gathering called Right to the City. And as soon as I heard that title, Right to the City, I was taken with that. And the analysis, which this is, um, and Gihan knows more about this than I do, but this is an analysis that really looks at rights um, for inhabitants of the city that are based on a human rights model, not a property rights model. So it's really looking at who has the right to participate in the life of the city, make its decisions, how do we define citizenship in a different way that is not based on property rights, and what is the overlap then um, when we start talking about inner cities, I mean, we are talking about racially segregated areas for the most part. How do you use this framework, which um, what I've been fascinated by is it's cross-issue. It looks at immigrant rights. It looks at electoral participation. It looks at housing, and the list goes on, public health, transportation. It's cross-issue um, and integrated in its focus. And it's a group of local organizations that have started organizing together. This is not a top-down strategy. Gihan, maybe you could say a little bit about the different groups that that started convening this conference. Sure. Um, Michael, would that be helpful to you? Yes, very much so, Gihan. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, 
great to be on with you and with uh, Elise. Um, and I feel like um, the conversations around this um, question of rights to the city um, really have come up because um, in inner city um, communities and you know urban uh, metropolitan areas throughout the country, uh, we've just been slammed um, with an absolute loss of programs from housing to job programs to education um, and slammed with a simultaneous loss of political power in the cities, which has really meant that um, people of color in particular, New Orleans being the biggest example, uh, have been wholly displaced um, and are being displaced from the, the urban core. Um, and we were really lost in some ways for a long time in working in different issues, um, whether it be housing or education or police brutality, to figure out how do we actually bring all of this together um, and address both the material issues, but then also this question of the lack of participation in political rights and, and the lack and loss of democracy in the cities. Um, and I think, um, you know, we had been talking to other groups because we've had to throughout the country who face similar issues. Um, and what was interesting was that we were dealing with it here in Miami, particularly around what was happening in the African-American community, um, and then had very quickly, you know, um, met with um, groups in Alexandria, Virginia, for example, the Tenant Workers um, Support Committee, who are facing very similar co conditions amongst newly arrived immigrants in Alexandria on the outskirts of D.C., um, and then similarly with the SAGE, which is a group in Los Angeles who was dealing with uh, immigrants and African Americans in the downtown area of L.A. as it was getting rapidly gentrified and redeveloped. Um, and I think first we found that we were facing common things that didn't really have a frame or a strategy uh, to address what we were up against in a holistic way. Uh, and we were fighting really reactive battles. Um, and so our kind of discovery of the rights to the city frame started really from our trying to figure a way out of our constant year-long uh, reactive battles. Uh, against predatory development that was happening in our neighborhoods um, without having really a proactive strategy to both uh, move forward but also to understand what we were fighting for. So sometimes we thought, thought we were just fighting for housing or sometimes we thought, well, we just got to get some jobs or then an immigration crisis would hit and we'd fight around that. Um, and we needed really something to bring all of that together um, and bring it together in a way that was from what in the communities what we found as a central kind of ethos around the power of place um, and community um, and a way to actually build on that as a value um, and, and, and to really tap into the power of that to talk about what we're looking for. So, Gihan, right now at the Miami Workers' Center, what, this week, what do you find yourself working on? What, what is uh, at the top of your agenda right now? Um, right now, this week, uh, well, two weeks ago, we won, maybe three weeks ago, we, we run this huge um, campaign um, where a thousand families were displaced from the African-American area through the destruction of public housing. Um, and a few weeks ago, we, we, we came and really had a historic agreement with the county 
to replace all 850 uh, units that were being demolished and to give a right to return for all of those thousand families. Um, and we signed a, a public agreement uh, that would not only rebuild the, the houses, give the people a right to return, but then also put the community uh, in our organization in the center of the redevelopment process, um, which included uh, a museum for the history of the, of the neighborhood and space for public participation, uh, and then really importantly, a seat at the table on how the development process will happen. Uh, and the top of the agenda now is how do we get um, other stakeholders in the community involved in the process of implementing this agreement um, so that it actually becomes a community-wide process um, that builds um, both community and political power of the stakeholders in this community. Um, and then can we actually use this as an opportunity to build in other partners and allies um, to build um, a new type of alliance? So we're trying to figure out can we build partnerships with labor um, can we build um, to actually talk about what the jobs piece on this will look like? Um, and we're talking with environmental groups to say, in the inner city, can we start building these houses uh, on a green-friendly basis, um, both for the good of, of, of what green-friendly building means, but also to get the environmental community with a you know, real investment uh, in the development of the African-American community. Gihan, am I right that one of the ways that the, the county or the, the forces of evil, if you will, in this situation um, uh, tried to affect um, the outcome was by pitting Greens against the local community activists? Yeah. I mean, about a year ago, actually one year ago, almost to the day, um, in the middle of this huge development boom that's been happening in the county, um, Basically, developers and developer lobbyists were pushing uh, the county to expand uh, the urban development boundary, um, which stopped development into the Everglades, to actually expand that and encroach into the Everglades in order to build um, what they said was low-income housing. Um, and they were doing this on the basis of the need for people in, in our neighborhoods um, to need housing because we had made um, such a big deal and there was such a crisis amongst affordable housing. Um, and so the, 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 the evils that be actually use that um, as an opportunity um, to, one, uh, start uh, using black faces and black needs as the needs to actually um, destroy um, what, what's remaining of the Everglades uh, and further push out into it. And so we had started back then really starting to go and get involved in speaking at those uh, environmental forums and around that debate to say that the solution um, to this crisis wasn't to push out to the Everglades, but to really invest in our communities where our people are now. So instead of displacing them to the, Everglade, to the Everglades with the alligators, actually bring them back home and build homes for them there. And so we had started you know, a relationship with some of the environmental groups through that process uh, and are now trying to take the next step and build them in further to actually invest into our neighborhoods. Is this uh, on your website, the Victory for Scott Carver Homes? Is that yeah. the specific campaign? Yeah. And could you describe to us uh, one of the leaders of that campaign from the community, Give a, uh, put a face on this for us? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, too. Um, one um, is Miss Mary Nesbitt, um, who actually lived in Scott Carver Homes um, for over 40 years, 
she was a nursing home worker and a shop steward uh, and a leader in her union. Um, she's African-American. Uh, her and her best friend, Mary Wadley, who were from, uh, who's from Mississippi uh, and migrated to Miami from Mississippi, um, lived there, raised their kids and their grandkids there, um, and had a solid community there from which she had her social networks, her economic networks. That's where her church friends were. That's where she uh, organized people to go and vote. Um, that's the place from which uh, they did uh, birthday parties and graduations and weddings. Uh, and in 2002, she was moved from there uh, to another uh, public housing uh, with a promise that she'd be able to come back once they rebuilt these homes. Uh, and for five years, uh, they kept saying that the houses would be rebuilt and they'd have an ability to come back, and nothing happened. And she stayed in her home that she was displaced, uh, the place that she was displaced to. And like she said, she, you know, she never put up her curtains because um, she always thought she'd go back home to Scott. Um, and it's only now that that possibility is going to happen. And she like a lot of the people who lived there were multi-generational people, and a lot of her friends and peers who lived there with her actually in the last five years have actually died waiting to go back. Um, another one of our leaders is Caprice Brown, um, who's a, a younger um, African-American woman who's raising three kids. Um, she uh, was a telecommunications worker, um, and uh, she got displaced in 2001 um, and has, was basically homeless for three years, um, uh, moving from place to place, and we were just able to get her a, a transitional house, um, and she's been central in actually fighting for the right uh, to return to Scott Holmes. And... Uh, Gihan, you you come originally from Sri Lanka, and as I understand, grew up in Los Angeles. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. How old were you when you came from Sri Lanka? I came here when I was four, uh-huh. um, almost five. Uh huh. So your early memories are mostly of Los Angeles. Yeah, when I uh, when I came to uh, Los Angeles, I first uh, lived in um, mostly a, a Latino uh, community, and then from the time I was six or seven on, I was, uh, I grew up in uh, the Crenshaw area, which is African-American area. Um, and I remember when I, when I first got here from Sri Lanka, I didn't um, speak English that well, and they put me in an ESL class uh, where they were teaching me, uh, you know, English, but in a Spanish medium. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was saying, bus, autobus, and I didn't really understand <laughs> either one. <laughs> but he now speaks very good Spanish, yeah. I have to say. And so now I speak Spanish, and then from there I went to, uh, you know, in, into South Central L.A., and uh, it's interesting, I grew uh, the, you know, I was Catholic, so I went to a, a black Catholic school, in, and in L.A., most uh, black Catholics actually from Louisiana and New Orleans. So I grew up with a lot of uh, New Orleans folks um, in, my, in my youth. And what, what was it like for you? What was the history of your consciousness coming from Sri Lanka and then finding yourself in Los Angeles, uh, first in a Latino community and then in an African-American community? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, for me, it was always a question of trying to belong, right? 
Um, and so I remember uh, when I was in the Latino community that I, you know, had a red handkerchief and a, you know, white outfit and, you know, danced uh, for the Cinco de Mayo celebration, right? Uh, and try, you know, and, and, and got into that cultural heritage. And then um, when I moved into the Crenshaw area, you know, I basically assimilated as one of the kind of New Orleans Creole kids um, uh, and went to gumbo fests and um, other, you know, activities that were both kind of Southern and Creole. And, um, you know, I feel like looking back on it, it was a constant um, attempt to try and uh, figure out how I fit, it, fit in, um, which was both successful and sometimes unsuccessful, right? So I, I was both uh, very much uh, assimilated into uh, the black and Creole traditions, but at the same time, uh, I was uh, undeniably Sri Lankan. Uh, and so I, was, I felt like in that whole time, I was always trying to figure out um, how both I fit in, but what it meant, because so much of what, even as a child, um, people's identification is and what my identification was, 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 was cultural and racial. Um, and, you know, um, at least when she started off the conversation, talked about the undeniable fact of um, structural racism in terms of the systems within um, our society. And from my experience, both in just growing up in, in Latino L.A. and then in black L.A., uh, but then also in being an organizer, um, the consciousness of folks in terms of how people see um, society working is through a racial lens. Um, and you can't go, you know, I was a, I was, I'm a you know, community organizer now at the Worker Center, but I was a labor uh, union organizer before that and did a lot of political work um, in the Bay Area uh, before that. Um, and as soon as you start organizing, um, you know, for me, it's whatever, you know, I had a class analysis and a political analysis, but as soon as you organize and go into the communities, people's first level of understanding of what's happening is through the, the, the lens of race. Um, and I think that central to then figuring out how we move forward is being able to address not only people's conceptions of race and how race is playing out in everything um, that they're perceiving, it's, it's their principal consciousness, um, but then, you know, how do we address that in a real way in terms of what's actually happening? Um, and for me, um, personally, a lot, for example, as I grew up, you know, went through Latino L.A. and then went to African-American L.A. Um, and started going into high school um, where the first time that I met uh, white people and the first time that I really encountered wealth, um, my own journey was to try and make sense of that for myself because the further I, uh, I went in my education, I went from, you know, um, a very poor working-class neighborhood in, in L.A., to a Jesuit middle-class high school and then to Cal Berkeley, the further I, I increased through that um, the, and the more I, I came into contact with wealth and education um, and, and, and whiteness and, and the more that people from my neighborhood, my background, myself actually, you know, kind of uh, diluted from that. I was you know, or it fell off, that I became one, much and much more kind of one of a few people of color, um, I was trying to understand 
systemically, you know, is it just me that I'm special and I'm smart and, you know, I made it and the rest of my friends should have too, or is there something more systematic um, at work here? Um, and uh, as you can probably imagine, my, my, I came down on the there's probably something more systematic going on here side of the thing. Um, and that was both a question of trying to understand um, how systems of power and class have played out in, in, in history, um, but very much um, how um, systems of race are intertwined with that. Well, the very idea of class in the United States has almost from the beginning been racialized. Um, and that construct of race, which has evolved so much in this country, um, but not nearly enough, is one that it's um, almost as invisible as whiteness. You know, whiteness in this country tends not to be a race. People don't have a race if they're white. You only have a race if you're Latino or if you're Asian American or you're African American. But the, the this color blindness um, that actually works to um, strengthen um, white dominance is, I think, one of the key things we're dealing with. And it, it can be so invisible. I mean, race is operating even when we can't quite see how it's operating sometimes. You know, um, talking about Kat- Katrina, um, one of the things that's been pointed out is that more poor white people were able to flee when the flooding came than poor African-American people. And the reason was, you know, they were all had incomes below poverty line, exactly the same incomes. But the difference was that poor white people had some assets. They had a car. Right. And poor black people didn't. So this, you know, where where does race begin and class end in, in an analysis like that? It's It's so intertwined in this country. And bringing this... You know, to me, it's what, what Gihan brings, and, and one of the ways that I connected with him was this outsider's eye. You are both a part of and not. And Elise, I was going to ask you, too, about your trajectory. You were, were you born in Puerto Rico, is that correct? I was born in Puerto Rico, and I um, came to the United States, and from the time I was about four or five, lived in a Jewish middle-class neighborhood in Flatbush. And we were the only Puerto Rican family. My, you know, we broke we broke the color line. Michael knows me, and so does Gihan. I'm pretty pale, uh, but nonetheless, I was Puerto Rican. Um, and we were breaking the color line in the '50s in this neighborhood. And I was my family was the only one. We were different. It was the way that I learned the construct of race most. Most clearly, you know, people would meet me and they wouldn't know what I was, that I was different than anyone else in the room. And then they would ask my name, and then they would go, what kind of name is that? And I would say Puerto Rican, and then I could see, even as a young child, you get very sensitive, you could see the veil drop yes. as you became other. Mm-hmm. And your trajectory, at least, included litigating civil rights cases with the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and education fund, and uh, working with the New York Women's Foundation as a founding board member, and serving as vice president of the Ms. Foundation for six years before you came to Tides, uh, where you've been the executive director. Uh, what has been the 
evolution of your uh, uh, social consciousness in that trajectory from recognizing as a little girl that when you said your name, the veil kind of dropped. Can you trace the trajectory of the development of your social consciousness uh, through those intervening stages? I, You know, it's not unlike what Gihan described, except that I would add the question of gender in there in terms of that social justice consciousness. You know, while in the outside world, as you try and figure this out, and as you watch, as Gihan described, that your cousins who are growing up in the South Bronx aren't are dropping out of high school. But you're in Brooklyn, in middle-class Brooklyn, going to Erasmus Hall, a very good high school back then, and you're, everyone expects that you're going to go to college. Um, you can see that, and you can you you start drawing these systemic conclusions in the area of gender. You know, it was right at home as well as outside of home. My brother had a bank account that my parents put money into a dollar a week when I was growing up. I didn't have a bank account. Um, and I asked, so why don't I have a bank account? Why does he have one and I don't? And the answer was, because you're going to get married and you're not going to need an education, and he is. So the gender stuff was, you know, so my argument at the time was, of course, well, then shouldn't you put money away for a big fancy wedding? But mm-hmm. um, that didn't quite make it with them. But the, those, those things, I think, that are so much a part of your very being as you grow up and as you struggle to make sense of it, as you come to these more systemic analyses and also as your intellect develops, you know, there's a way I think in which you, I feel really gifted, graced with this opportunity to have interwoven the, the experiential, the intuitive with intellectual development and, you know, reading good analyses about the nature of race and the racial construct and what it all means in this country. But having it a felt sense of it, I think, is the resonance that you bring to every bit of your work. Could you say more about that experiential and intuitive dimension of your work? Have, is that an aspect of your life that you've consciously developed or simply one that has come to you? You know, I think in the beginning it's something you have and you do. You, know, you, you use your intuitive sense, um, sometimes with more or less trust, and without a whole lot of awareness, at least on my part. I would say in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I've, I've come to a place of honoring, honoring that intuition, that, that felt sense of things, and what I think is a real wisdom that I can't properly, somewhat mysterious, I can't tell you all the sources of it, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's like blink and thin slicing and all of that, and there are all sorts of cognitive elements that I'm just not aware of um, in the moment, but that's not my full experience of it, and I use it. I try and use it to, when I walk into a room, when I walk into a group, when I walk into a conflict, What's my sense of what's really going on in there? Um, I I try and use it as much as I can. I I really believe it enriches. I think one of my connections with 
Gihan is watching him do that in a room. Gihan, I wanted to ask you the same, since Idalise brought this up, and it's a subject of great interest to me. Uh, how do you experience the intuitive or experiential dimension of how you uh, work and move through the world? Um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like um, it's really rooted into a, in a huge degree that starts with self-awareness. Um, and self-awareness, you know, has two sides to it, right? So self-awareness on the one side can be a huge degree of self-awareness that you're different, that you're other, that your impact as being other in the surround, in, in the world around you. Um, so I was thinking about that as at least talked because you know, even my son, um, from the age of three, um, was incredibly color conscious. Um, you know, from from, when, from, the, from almost the time that he began speaking, um, was a bit aware of his relationship in terms of color um, to the other kids around him. Um, and so it really made me also recognize that this question of intuition around self that I think then really lends towards intuition also of others and kind of the dynamics of a room um, starts very, very early. Um, and the question is, to what degree do we pay attention to it and try and understand it? Um, so for me, for example, you know, as I both intellectually developed and emotionally developed, my whole intuition was also really wrapped up around my own self-awareness, um, around who I was, um, how I related to the world around me. So, you know, was I black, was I Sri Lankan, was I Latino, was I none of those, how, how did you know, that perception and my perception of myself really impact the way that I entered the world and how people perceived uh, me. Um, and, you know, really, I think for a lot of us, um, going through process of being able to separate what parts of that self-awareness uh, are uh, wrapped up in self-hate um, about being black, about being Latino, about being Sri Lankan or Asian, um, and what of that self-awareness we really have a sense of yourself and your impact and, and the impacts of race and class and gender um, are playing out in the situations around you. And, and those situations are, can be very intimate situations um, between individuals uh, in organizations, uh, in the community at large, and, you know, and you know, ultimately uh, in the social justice movement because... Um, I think I've noticed the same thing with Italy's. Um, those dynamics um, around which people's self-perceptions and perceptions and the dynamics around which race, class, and gender and history and perception are playing out between groups is really huge um, in terms of how movements um, come together or don't, how groups come together or don't, how organizations last or don't. Um, and I think I've become increasingly aware of those um, dynamics and histories and how it plays out in the work that we do. Um, I used to, you know, for a long time when I first became kind of at Berkeley and was became politically conscious and, you know, um, 
understood political positions and lines and, and theory and ideology. Uh, you know, went through a phase where I was just like, you know, it's all about the politics and people's politics. Um, and increasingly, um, I'm uh, even, you know, as I'm become more self-aware of myself, but increasingly see how politics and people's how they relate to how people relate to each other politically are so much tied into um, how people perceive and relate to each other's um, histories uh, and their race and, and like where people come from. Um, and you know, it's interesting for me. I you know I you know for a long time um, did union organizing, um, and in some ways, um, I think a lot of us see uh, sometimes maybe class can be the equating factor um, to race. Uh, and gender, and that if we, you know, really take on uh, uh, a class-based approach, um, that that's a way to kind of unify the, the all these other differences. And what was interesting to me in doing union organizing first on the West Coast, and then I organized um, textile factories in the South, um, to see the degree to which, and even in very traditional labor and class um, union organizing. Even there, the, all of the campaigns, the union organizing campaigns, played out largely uh, along race. Um, and for me, and you know, and my personal relationship to it was basically how that community viewed me. So, um, in South Carolina, you know, I was just some sort of um, I was accepted as black. Um, in North Carolina, I generally was too, except in the place where they had. Uh, Minor league baseball and a lot of Dominicans. <laughs> you were Dominican. <laughs> yeah, they thought you know I was like the newest player in town, right? So I had like star celebrity on that way, but it was very different. Um, but in the campaigns, um, also that 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 the, the relationship of between the black workers and the white workers historically played out in the South around race, even though they were both working similar jobs. Uh, in, in, in factories um, because there was a difference in terms of how people got promoted or who had supervisorial positions or the kind of engineering positions. And so, it, 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 you, you know, I couldn't, even when I tried to look for a class fix uh, to racial differences, it just didn't happen. Um, it, on the West Coast and in the South and here in Miami, which is, you know, a whole other um situation with the relationship between African-Americans, Haitians, Cubans, and other Latinos, um, the way that race plays out is the way that class plays out. But in, when, you know, when you consider this whole human rights model, which rights to the city uh, specifically is grounded in, when I think about human rights, it is for me the coming together of that more intellectual, political analysis and this felt sense, this intuitive, more mysterious element of we are all human and feel this connection that is is not always easily reduced to to words or concepts that are analytic and linear. Um, it is more that felt sense. So this whole model, this framework of human rights to me is has a foot in each one of those camps. It's grounded in both. Um, and it is, I think, why it has such potential and is, in fact, more accessible to people 
you know, one of the places you can take this human rights model is to language that I've been hearing more and more and has been actively promoted around opportunity, opportunity for all, communities of opportunity. And it, it does go back to this value that I think many people share, regardless of a lot of some of the other surface around race and gender, that some basic sense of fairness, that we should all have an equal chance. I find that really intriguing, at least. So you're suggesting that there's a, a race, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about the depth of how in, entwined race and class are in the United States. Uh, uh, and obviously gender has been a, a core uh, a reality and uh, struggle and issue for uh, decades, uh, centuries, of course. But uh, you're suggesting that the human rights approach to all of these questions is at some intuitive level connected to uh, a core collective belief in opportunity and communities of opportunity that bring these different frames together in a particularly creative way. Is that what you're saying? It's, it's, I wish I could say it as nicely as you do, Michael, but yes, that's what I did absolutely mean to say. And without, without demanding a denial of identity, mm-hmm. right? To, it, it's willing to, to hold those, you know, it's willing to hold the specificity of identity as well as the universality of one's humanity, all at the same time. And Gihan, in, on the ground in Miami, uh, uh, how does that, uh, if at all, uh, play out in your experience? Well, I think hugely, um, meaning that it's, you know, the, the breakthrough, I think, is that it's the intuitive sense and belief and understanding that I think is widespread in everywhere, including in the communities, that yes, there's an underlying human value um, to all of us. Um, and I think it's the and that that human value is actually strengthened by our own experiences, identities, backgrounds, histories, our specific um, path to where us, our people, uh, are now. And I think that it's that place where you can actually strengthen and bring to human rights and to humanity the strength of yourself and and your particular background, where you don't have to give that up to be human, right? It's not a a human rights framework that says, because we're all human, we don't have difference. It's actually saying, because we are human, we have so much difference and diversity and strength. Uh, and it's actually embracing um, those histories and rooting um, human rights in, in actually the depth of those histories. And so for us, for example, in, in Scott Holmes' example, so many people in the community um, for so many years fought around Scott Holmes, people who lived there and were displaced and people who weren't, because what ultimately was being destroyed and displaced there, which is very similar to what you hear out of people from New Orleans, is that there is a whole history, a whole strain of human relationships um, and stories 
um, that were being destroyed there and what people were essentially trying to bring together um, when they were fighting around um, the Scott Holmes. They were basically trying to bring back together their sense of history uh, and what they bring to the table um, uh, as, as humans. And I feel like what was interesting to me was that um, what in some sense is really a story about an African-American community that was displaced and trying to hold themselves together. Um, Latino members um, that come from a completely different part of the city really and totally aligned with that sense of history and spirit and humanity because essentially they were fighting for community too. Um, and whereas we thought, you know, we could kind of figure out, can we bring people together around the issue of housing? Um, what really mobilized people and what really the spirit of what brought people together was that intuitive sense of common humanity and the respect for the history and community that people bring to the table. I wanted to ask you both to reflect on a question of uh, what the contemporary uh, meanings of, of the, the term people of color is. Um, it's a question that I've followed with great interest and respect for many years. But as I reflect on what it means in America today, uh, people of color includes both the very highest and the lowest income groups. It includes the least and most represented in top colleges. And you have a reality today which is quite unlike uh, the reality uh, of the past often, where you may have organizers uh, who move from uh, environmental justice or social justice organizing to business school to top positions in philanthropy or uh, even business. And specifically, um, uh, the South Asian community, which is very prominent uh, in social and environmental justice organizing, is among the communities that... Uh, uh, given uh, the background that their families brought or the culture or whatever other uh, uh, aspects contribute to it, uh, often have this capacity to uh, engage deeply in, in social justice or environmental justice organizing, but may also have the educational skills to take a completely different trajectory at another point in their lives. And this, of course, fits with this enormous diversity in uh, income and educational uh, opportunity that are available to some communities of color. So the question I wanted to ask you both is, um, how? what are the stories that uh, we are telling each other about what the term people of color means when uh, there is this tremendous diversity in experiences uh, and opportunities within that broader frame? You know, I think it's really interesting that I I come at this question um, from the perspective of what does white mean, right? And when and that history, I think, sheds a lot of light on the question you're asking about 
what it, what is the uh, the actual significance of people of color when you have some of these class and opportunity differences there? Right. But the whole question of white, it was you know, growing up in this middle class Jewish neighborhood. It was amazing to me years later to find out that in the United States, Jews were not always white. They Absolutely. they became white Absolutely. to find out that the Irish were not. I you know I grew up in a neighborhood that was all middle class Jewish except for three Irish families and mine, and it, the Irish were not white. So the willingness of this country to expand its definition of whiteness, and it is um, many think one of the issues right now with, and I've been hearing this for a couple of decades that for Latinos. They can, you know, we can be whitewashed. Mm-hmm. We can be made white. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, um, it's happened with uh, some Asian American communities, um, which I, I think were some of the communities you were referring to in terms of the access they have to um, education, higher education, and, and opportunities in business and the like, more so perhaps in other people of color communities. So I think of it that way, and this whole, this construction of race, what, what is it, you know, and, and what it means to people. Um, and, and, and again, another one of these for me almost, it's a paradox, you know, it's sort of, it is, it is, a, it is meaningless. There, what, what is the definition of, of African-American in this country? You know, it's not, it's not phenotype. I mean, we, we don't have races that are based just on phenotype, particularly if you go to Latin America where there's so much mixing, um, as there is in the United States, but kind of more acknowledged mixing in Latin America. You can't use phenotype. Um, I'm, as, as you know, as and I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm very fair-skinned. But in Puerto Rico, I'm not considered blanca, blanquita, as we would say, because my family was poor. Mm. In order to be called blanquita, little white, I needed to both to be fair-skinned and to have money. And in fact, if I would have had money and was dark-skinned, I could still be called blanquita. Interesting. So the, the, the mutability, if you will, of, of, of what is race then? What is whiteness? And how is that going to be, you know, with the increase in the number of Latinos in this country, you know, our, and our own cultural takes on race, which tend to be in, in many Latin American countries, the, the discourse is one of colorblindness, even though the reality isn't that. The discourse is of, oh, we're, we're all Brazilian or we're all Puerto Rican. Um, but it was very clear. I mean, one of my experiences was because it was fair skin. My grandmother told me that I could marry whoever I wanted. But my darker skinned cousin, she had to marry a fair skinned man. And actually, she probably should marry a white American. How interesting. And I would say two things. I mean, one is um, I feel like the on the question of I mean, I believe in on the question of people of color and and, and a lot of this. I think the first thing is just you know, as Elisa stated often, that that race is and racial formation is a historical and social conjuncture, right? I mean, so in, in a construction. Um, 
And so for me, I feel like, one, specificity really helps um, to really talk about, you know, what, um, you know, what we're, what we're talking about. Because the, so on the one hand, I feel like people of color as a term um, really is used a lot, partly because uh, it comes from, you know, when I was on campus and other places, when we talked about people of color, we were really talking about people who came from colonized and third world countries. So people who were colonized from, um, from European, by European countries. And, you know, even if you look now um, at Asian and, and South Asian um, uh, communities here, um, there's the reality of the specifics of, you know, what is their status um, and access within the United States. And then, but a lot of, you know, who they are is also viewed by the status of their people throughout the world, right? So, um, Similarly, within the United States, then, you know, there's specific histories of African-Americans, of Latinos um, in the South and Southwest of Puerto Ricans. And I feel like we have to be able to, when we're talking um, at different levels, to really talk specifically uh, about the different histories and the conditions of different peoples within the United States and then relationship with people outside of the United States. Um, And I think, for me, people of color generally comes up because even amongst those groups that you talked about, um, South Asians and otherwise, even within the United States circles where they have more access um, to education and other things, they still aren't considered white. Um, uh, And two is then, but then we do have to go beyond people of color to talk about really what's happening with race in the United States. And that's a specific conversation in terms of what's happening to Native Americans what's happening to Puerto Ricans in, in New York, what's happening to African-Americans in the South and um, throughout the country, what's happening to uh, Latinos, particularly in the Southwest, and, and then migrants. So those are very specific histories in terms of if we break it down from there. And I think that that's helpful. Um, but I think that even if we get into that specificity, um, that looking for solutions come out of really talking about, you know, the variety of what's happening to people. Uh, But overall, um, as Italy said, um, it comes from us, at least as a starting point for identifying and being real that that race and racial formation is continuing to play out here and to be able to put that on the front burner to understand what's happening. As we wind down toward the end of, of this conversation, for which I'm very grateful, I'd like to come back to, in a sense, our dreams for uh, where we could go in America to uh, move beyond the constructions of race and class that we are uh, stuck with. Uh, least you've spoken of uh, the rights to the city and of human rights as two a core concepts for you in that respect. Um, in your work at the Tides Foundation and in your life, what do you hope to contribute over the next uh, five years or decade to this particular uh, uh, trajectory that we're on? Well, I I would hope that through the, the work that we do here at Tides and, and, and elsewhere, wherever I am, that I am part of efforts that really help to illuminate this conversation, to bring a consciousness to 
this conversation that allows for, that, that, that makes space for the kind of work that Gihan is doing. You know, there's some, it's, it, in progressive movement, I think it is, there's so many parallel tracks on which we have to function. And there is how we speak about what we do, what is this vision that we have that is, is about human rights, that is intuitive and slightly mysterious and, and about something bigger than each one of us. There is that whole track and how then do we frame that in a way that is accessible to other people, you know, using language that is meaningful and that evokes that experience in other human beings, how to do that. Um, while at the same time coming up with strategies, the one of the reasons I am I am such a fan of, of the right to the city framework is that it creates a framework for solutions. It creates a framework for if you start thinking about what is it that if I have rights because I live in this city, because I live in this neighborhood, Oh, what does that mean? Rights that I get to decide about how we use the land, that I get to decide whether we're going to encroach on the Everglades or not, that I get to decide, I get to participate in these decisions, and that it is on the basis of my humanity. Um, not long ago in, in San Francisco, a couple of years ago, they tried to pass an ordinance that would allow any parent of a child in the San Francisco um, schools to vote for the school board. It failed, but it was a different conception of citizenship that did not depend on legal, you know, um, constructs of citizenship, but depended on inhabiting the area, being part of the community. That that level of opening that space. And enlisting people, my, my biggest fear is that, in some regards, progressive movement has become professionalized, almost. It's probably terrible language politically, but um, it's, it's most human beings who share these values. What are they to do? If I believe in all of these things, what does it mean for me to be part of this movement? It means that I give money to certain organizations, perhaps, and it means that I vote once a year if I'm good um, for certain issues. But what real opportunity for participation is there? Um, and I think that right to the city and in human rights, just by the very nature of what it is and how I see people like Gihan using it as a strategy, begins to break some of that down. That's very helpful. Thank you. Gihan, what about you? As you do your work at the Miami Workers' Center and have this rich experience with uh, Latino and uh, African-American communities uh, in Miami, what is your hope uh, for your own work over the next five years? I think, um, I mean, I'd start with what you laid out, which is how do we imagine a construct a politics and power um, that's beyond the current race and class oppressive structures that we have now, um, where we really are, as Italy said, tied together by our our, our common humanity and our, and our right to exist and participate are really brought together by that. Um, and then for me as an organizer, the question is, well, given where we are now, 
how do we get to that? Um, and to get to that one starts with a framework that says, let's reimagine what rights are, um, and that rights are actually based on the fact that we occupy, inhabit, create the space that's around us. Um, and based on that, and based on our humanity, we have a right to have um, democratic decision-making over how this place runs, meaning the city. Um, and we bring our histories to that. Um, and I think what I would see over the next five years, one in Miami, is that that framework begins to be one that, based on the realities and the histories of the different communities here between the Haitians, the Latinos, the African Americans, that it creates a common ground for the people who are most directly impacted by the current um, race and class in inequities to really come together and see their commonality. Um, and then second, that in doing that, that they can actually see ways that we and our communities can unite um, with broader sections of, 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 um, of, of the society here in, in, in Miami-Dade. Um, but beyond that, I think if that can happen here, can we imagine that happening across the country? Um, so in the least recent convenings we had at the rights, over the rights to the city, um, you know, we saw very quickly that with this framework um, how different communities, different racial groups, but then also different issues could come together and really use this as a framework to reimagine what we're fighting for. Um, so we're not just fighting for issues. We're actually fighting um, for rights that um, go beyond um, either a wage increase or a number of units of housing, but really the power to be able to create community um, and, have, and be in decision-making uh, equity with each other. Um, and that's what I would see. And I think if we did that, this framework will actually let us bring together um, collaborations of people within cities um, and across cities um, in ways that can really be powerful um, to both push an urban agenda um, around how we want to recreate and create a home for us um, in the cities, uh, but also through that to be able to then really link up with the various progressive um, um, pieces of the movement out there, including the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the environmentalists, and for really to come together under a framework that, that, that brings us together. Thank you both for being with us in this New School Conversation. Idalise Malave of the Tides Foundation, Gihan Pereira, co-founder of the Miami Workers Center. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www dot commonweal dot org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.